Tonight reminds me a great deal of yesteryear. I can remember when uh, buildings would be filled and there would be people sitting in the Amen corner and when I preached at Baghdad, the A-Women corner. There was, no, there was no men who sat in this corner at Baghdad. All the women, there were women that sat over there and uh, some of their husbands were sitting over here. I don't think they were estranged or anything like that, but uh, that was just custom in those days. Very few couples sat together at Baghdad when I first began preaching there in the mid-60s, and uh, there were a few, but uh, we had that going on over there for many, many years, and uh, I, I just thought about that tonight, and I, Randy kept talking about me holding this meeting. I don't want to hold a meeting. We won't let it go. <laughs> uh, Tom Holland made that point many years ago. He preached a sermon entitled, Let's Stop Holding Meetings. And he made the point that sometimes we hold them, you know, by not announcing them and all of that and not encouraging people to come and not attending them and supporting them. So he said, let's stop holding them. Let's, let's let them go. And, uh, but we still use that term. I do too, Randy. We appreciate your being here tonight. There's so many people that are here that I've known and loved and respected for many, many years. And uh, it was good tonight to be able to uh, uh, stop at Helen's Restaurant at the uh, get-together in honor of Charles and Geneva, Randy's parents. They've been married 50 years. And uh, we have known Charles, of course, since high school, and Barbara and Geneva worked together for a little while, and we came to, to love and appreciate them over the years, and, and uh, Geneva and Barbara were often mistaken for sisters uh, back years ago, and uh, we just came to really appreciate and respect them. And I was privileged, I don't know if some of you know this, not privileged to perform the ceremony uh, for Randy and Denise a few years ago, and uh, we really had a, a good time doing that. I'm not going to tell all the stories that I could tell, but uh, you can talk to the youngest daughter over there and find out about it later if you want to. One of my favorite stories from some of the weddings that I've done occurred that night, but it was a, a beautiful ceremony, and as they walked out last night, uh, I happened to be back at the door, and, and they walked out together, and I said, you know, that looks familiar. Reminds me of you all walking down the aisle for the wedding, and uh, so there's a lot of good memories involved with their family. So many preaching brethren here tonight. I always appreciate them. I'm not going to do like one preacher did several years ago when I and several other preachers in the audience, he said, we're glad to have all these preachers here, but ain't nobody needs preaching to more than preachers. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's really very true. All, all of us need to study the Bible, and that's one of the things, you know, that little Reader's Digest thing, that uh, things that a plumber will never tell you and things that a mechanic will never tell you, things that a preacher will never tell you. Uh, one of the things a preacher will never tell you that, probably he gets on his own toes more than anybody else's. And so, you know, that's, it's, we all need to study the Bible uh, from a personal vantage point. And I would be remiss if I, I, I don't need to belabor the point and thank everybody, you know, individually, but the people from Carthage that are here tonight, I really appreciate them coming because 
these people have been listening to me preach for so many years. They've heard all my sermons and all of that. And Kobe and Shirley Sadler are here tonight. Kobe serves as one of our deacons, and Shirley helps with the food program and so on. We appreciate them coming, and they're good friends to Stella Smith. And so they're here tonight to visit with her. And we're just so thankful to have them. And I am glad to have my lovely bride of 49, 48 years, be 49 in July here tonight, Barbara, and we're we're glad that she's here as well. Miss Dixon would love to come with us, but she's now 88 years old, and, and uh, she doesn't uh, feel like getting ready and going a lot. It tires, gets tired very easily later in the day, especially, and we appreciate your concern about her, and uh, some have asked about her, and, and uh, she's doing pretty good. Most of you know that we lost my mother in January, right after the first of the year, and uh, she was almost 97. And so many people have been so good to our family in connection with her uh, long drawn out uh, illness uh, with Alzheimer's and so on. And, and uh, we kept her at home for a, a long, long time, but eventually she had to have skilled care. And uh, that was a really, really hard decision. But uh, we appreciate so many of you in so many ways, in very close, personal ways, and you mean a lot to us. We appreciate your being here. But the day of the gospel meeting is not over. The people at Pippin have proven that. You fill this building for every service, really, during this gospel meeting. Randy mentioned yesterday that we just had one day of the meeting under our belt yesterday afternoon, but we was already halfway through it, three services yesterday. And every service was characterized by excellent attention, wonderful singing, good prayers, and uh, just, just a really a wonderful gospel meeting. In the book of Luke, chapter 13, you read where Jesus said in two verses, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's just one of many times that Luke mentions the subject of repentance. Before he closed the book of Luke, he mentions the Great Commission. And Matthew emphasizes going and teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mark emphasizes belief and baptism. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, he mentions that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in all nations in the name of Christ, beginning at Jerusalem. And when he began that second volume to Theophilus, you read a lot about repentance in the book of Acts, too. In chapter 2, verse 38, as Peter answers the inquiring Jews who said, uh, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They had just learned that they had actually crucified the Son of God. And so they inquired, What do we need to do? And Luke records that Peter said, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. A little bit later in Acts 3, verse 19, Luke records Peter again as he said, Repent you therefore, and be converted, 
that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching in the city of Athens. And as that great skeptical audience had assembled, he didn't talk about a lot of things that he could have talked about to have been politically correct. He pointed out to those people that there were not many gods, that there was only one God, and that He is the creator of all life. All men owe their existence to that one God. He points out that we're all of one blood. Regardless of our skin color, if we have the same blood type as somebody with another colored skin, there can be a blood transfusion take place between those people, though they be from different races. And that's true all over the world. Paul was exactly right when he said God made them of one blood. There's not different kinds of blood, different types, but it's all the same basic type blood in all people. God created all of us. He's our creator. And then he said, he not only created us, but it is in him that we live and move and have our very being. He is our constant stay. He is the one who sustains us. And then he said, he's appointed a day in the which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, that man whom he hath ordained. Jesus is going to be our judge. Now in view of that, what do men need to do? Paul reminded that great Athenian audience filled with philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, that that same God is going to judge us and therefore he commands all men everywhere to repent. Even in Athens, people who were very learned, they would be called scholars today. They would gather and theorize and philosophize about everything you could imagine. But he told them in no uncertain terms that the need that they had was no different from the needs of all other people on the face of the earth. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to me to make repentance a very important, important matter. The things that we have noticed having been said about repentance, we cannot help but, if we believe the Scriptures, to come to the conclusion that repentance is very important. I didn't hear T.B. Larimore Larimore preach in person I know I look old enough to do that but I didn't but T.B. Larimore was a very eloquent spokesman it is said that he would simply stand very erect with hands folded 
And the, the, the eloquence would just flow out of him. One of the most powerful pieces I've ever read was written by Larry Moore after he moved to California. He wrote an article in the Gospel Advocate about Abraham going to offer Isaac. And he talked about all the things that that father and son could have talked about on the way to that mount. As well as talking about, of course, what is recorded. But he describes so eloquently the possible thoughts that were running through Abraham's mind. Going to offer his son, the son of promise, the son for whom he had waited so long. And as you read it, you, you, were, you had to be moved by it. But it was T.B. Larimore who said that probably of all the commands that God gives, repentance is the most difficult with which to comply. It's very difficult to really be truly penitent. I dare say that just about every preacher in this audience has shaken hands with somebody here at the front of the building or maybe in a private meeting of some sort. They have talked to someone who have said, you know, I have sinned, but. And when they utter that word, but, you know, something else is coming. I've sinned, but now I hadn't done anything that's really that bad. I've sinned, but it's not nearly as bad as it may sound. And we start to try to soften the effect. True true penitence doesn't do that. It doesn't try to qualify or quantify the sin or rationalize it, try to explain it away, try to soften the significance of it and the repercussions of it. If I remember correctly, less than a dozen people in the scriptures are said to have simply said, I have sinned, period. I have sinned. We need to put a period there and, as we used to say, let that soak in. I have sinned. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my family. I've sinned against my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've brought reproach upon the church. That's not an insignificant thing. I have sinned. Luke says a lot about repentance. And I want to focus on one chapter tonight that maybe we overlook sometimes in connection with repentance. I intentionally didn't even mention it a while ago. You'll probably know the chapter well. But I wonder if we've ever really stopped and studied it from the standpoint of repentance. 
Now, we could talk about the meaning of the Greek term, metanoeo, and the fact that it means to change. Part of the word means to change. The other part means to perceive. Thus, to perceive in the mind or to change the mind. You know, there's a lot of people who have minds like concrete, thoroughly mixed and permanently set. And sometimes sin can really do that to us. We can get into the path of sin and it becomes such a habit to us that we begin to think it's normal. You know, there are people all the time, mentioned it a little bit yesterday, they call good evil and evil good. They're saying that unnatural things are natural. That things that are not really normal are normal. That really what the Bible describes as lust is actually love. That's the way sin works on us. Very deceptive. And after you continue to do a thing for a while, you begin to think, what? You know, nothing wrong with this. And that's what's happening in our culture now. I mentioned yesterday that less than 5% of the people have decided that something that has been defined as marriage between a man and a woman is no longer the norm. I mean, marriage has been between a man and a woman now for millenniums. And suddenly somebody has said, why, we ought to get the Supreme Court to discuss this and see what they decide that marriage actually is. Well, marriage has already been defined a long time. But, you know, if people convince themselves that, well, maybe that's not the norm. There's already been a case where a father and a daughter who had been estranged for 17 years, I believe. He really hadn't seen her since birth. When she was 17, they met and embraced, and there was a spark there. And they fell in love. And he's now married his daughter. What's to say, you know, that a man might decide, I love little children. And I just want to marry this little girl. Or what would keep some woman from marrying her poodle? You know, that sounds outlandish, but I wouldn't be surprised. That's what happens to us when we allow sin to take control of us. And when you go so far, it's very difficult to change that mind. W.E. Vine defines this word as to change one's mind or purpose. And I like what Joseph Thayer said about it in addition as he defined it. He said it means changing one's mind for the better. That's a very key part of that definition, for the better. There's a lot of people that change their minds for the worse. 
to change one's mind for the better. And then listen to this latter part of Thayer's definition. He says, heartily to amend with abhorrence for one's past sins. When we have read Romans 12, 9, abhor that which is evil. Have we ever thought about that in connection with repentance? That's what repentance is. Oh, I thought Romans 12, 9 was talking about abhorring everybody else's sins. No. It's talking about abhorring sin, period, wherever it's found, in my life or in anybody else's. We must develop that abhorrence of sin. So repentance, properly understood, would be a change of heart. Jesus illustrates that in Matthew 21 when he talks about the two boys who were told by their dad, go work in the vineyard. And one of them said, uh, I will, but he didn't go. The other one said, I will not. And later he repented and went. He repented and went. I get kidded a lot about eating chicken. I stopped down there we mentioned at the get together and they had fried chicken. And I heard three or four preacher jokes about fried chicken before I left. And I told Brother Roy Gentry the story about my aunt who came with her children to visit at our house. And we got up late one morning. Her oldest daughter and I were the last to the table and all the chicken was gone but three pieces. I think there was a gizzard and a, a liver and a back, probably. It's <laughs> about all there was left of that old fryer. Well, anyway, my aunt said to her daughter, get you a piece of chicken. And her daughter said, I'm not eating that chicken. And my aunt looked at her and said, I said get a piece of that chicken. She said, I will not. And about that time my aunt slapped her. Her head spun all the way around. And I reached and got me a piece of chicken. <laughs> now, she changed my mind. I wasn't going to eat chicken. But I got me a piece of chicken too. I'm not suggesting that that uh, particular thing needs to be done all the time. But you remember that statement that the psalmist made in Psalm 51 as he lamented about his sin? And he talked about a contrite heart. I believe that's in verse 17. Hebrew scholars define that word contrite from the Hebrew word to refer to a bruised and broken heart. A heart that is broken. I believe that there is a connection between that and what Jesus said when he said, Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We need to be mourning over sin. We need to be praying for our nation and for God's forgiveness. First time that I ever heard a brother in the church pray for the sins of our nation, confessing the sins of the nation and asking God's forgiveness, 
I thought, well, I don't know if that's proper or not, you know. He needs to maybe just be concentrating on his own sins. But then I got to study in the Bible. And we have some examples in the Bible of people who confess the sins of their nation and ask God to forgive them. We need to be mourning over sin. Sin is the only thing that can keep people out of heaven. God wants everybody to be saved. And the only thing that can keep people out of heaven is sin. The love of God wants them there. His mercy, His grace, all of those things shows that He wants them there. That's where he wants everybody to be. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 states that. Having defined sin, or repentance rather, we, we know that it's produced by godly sorrow from what, uh, what uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It's not the sorrow of the world. It's a different type of sorrow. It's not being sorry you were caught. You know, there's some people who will not acknowledge a sin until they have been caught. And then they may feign penitence without truly being sorry. But go back and read the Psalms that David wrote about his sin with Bathsheba. And not just the sin with her, but the sin in having her husband killed. The deception and the deceit in which he engaged. He was overwhelmed by a sense of grief and sorrow. And he no doubt carried it, as we say sometimes, to the grave with him. And all oh, Paul did great works. But do you not realize that sometimes sitting in that prison cell, he thought about the people that he had helped put to death? People who believed in the Son of God. People who believed with all their heart that Jesus was the Savior of the world and had died for their sins. He had helped kill those people. He was truly penitent. Even said of himself, I'm the chief of sinners. There's very few people would ever admit that. It leads to reformation of life, doesn't it? You'll remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul mentions that catalog of sins. Verses 9 through 11. He says in that last verse, such were, past tense, such were some of you. That implies a reformation of life. That's what repentance is. Repentance is necessary because of sin. Sin brings death. Sin, when it is finished, James said, brings forth death. Oh, you may enjoy it for a while. For a season it may bring great pleasure, but when it is finished with you, it brings death. Wages of sin's death, Paul said in Romans 6, verse 23. 
Repentance is needed by all men everywhere because all men everywhere sin. None righteous, no, not one. That's the reason we need to repent. We need to repent because God commands it. God is not engaging in idle chit-chat when He gives a command. His commands are very significant. Well, I've heard religious people kind of make fun of the concept that you had to obey God to be saved. Many years ago, I had an individual call me one day and challenge me on the idea of obeying the gospel. I'd been preaching on the radio. We had a radio, daily radio program at the time. And he said, why? Preacher, you can't obey the gospel. I said, you sure about that? And I asked him to turn in his Bible, as we were talking on the phone, to 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And I asked him to read it. And about what's going to happen to those who obey not the gospel. They're going to be lost. And I've looked at countless other passages with him. And I said, it's perfectly scriptural to talk about obeying the gospel. It is designed to be obeyed. It is intended to be obeyed. And we must obey it in order to enjoy the salvation that God offers. I heard a man in a debate one time. As the gospel preacher that was speaking during that engagement emphasized the importance of obeying God's commands, the denominational preacher said, which commands? And I think, you know, how could you miss that point? Every command of God is important. He's not just saying something to be saying something. That command comes out of His love for our souls. And everything that He commands us to do is very, very important. And we have seen from Luke 13, we need to repent in order to avoid perishing. Because He said, I tell you, nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You see, if we're all sinners and the wages of sin is death, then if we don't repent, we're going to remain in our sins. And those who continue in sin are condemned. John chapter 3 reminds us that those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son and accept Him for who He is will not so much be condemned by Him, Jesus even said, I didn't come to condemn. I came to save. Why would he say something like that? Because, you know, Jesus is going to condemn us in the day of judgment. Well, not really. He's going to judge us. But what's going to condemn us is our sins. We were already in our sins and in a state of condemnation when he came. And if we reject him, the only Savior that's going to be sent... What will happen? We'll remain condemned. We're condemned already. And so we'll be lost eternally. But the chapter that I wanted to mention just briefly, very familiar to you, about three people, kinds of people that are lost. Luke 15 is the chapter. 
It hasn't been too long ago that I studied that chapter and I'd been looking at repentance in the book of Luke and I kept reading and rereading this chapter and, and I began to notice that man alive, repentance is mentioned several times in Luke 15. Every time Jesus talked about the sheep, the coin, and the boy, he had something to say about the joy that was characteristic of those in heaven and the joy of those who were upon earth with these people who had repented. And I thought, this is one of the greatest chapters on the joys that are associated with repentance that I've ever read before. Oh, I'd read it many, many times. Preached from Luke 15 on countless occasions. But do you notice when the sheep was found, and that's another important word. It's good to study the Bible and just look at one word. Look at how many times the word found is used in Luke 15. The lost sheep was found. The lost coin was found. Even the lost boy was found. What does that tell us? We need to be out searching for the lost. The lost coin, as has been pointed out many times, represents... Someone that is lost and doesn't even know they're lost. The sheep represents somebody who is lost. They know they're lost, but they don't know how to get home. You ever had a, any sheep around you? We did growing up. When I was a young boy, Daddy kept sheep all the time. I'd help. Uh, I was able to do a little bit about the shearing and so on, but not a lot. I got to feed them sometime and played with the little lambs and all of that. But a sheep could get separated from the rest of them, be standing over yonder on that hill, and they'd just stand there and bleat. And you'd have to go and get them and bring them back. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said about the sheep. So you have to go and search for them and find them. Daddy lost one little lamb one time, and back then, a lamb was very important. I don't know exactly how much it brought at the stock sale, but every animal on the farm was treasured because that meant a little cash money coming in, you know. And so we looked and looked and looked and couldn't locate it. And finally one day, he was walking through what we called the old house place. There was an old abandoned well right in the middle of the house place. And he heard this faint, we called it blading, but the, the, the bleeding of the sheep. And he came to the house, got his old coal oil lantern, and got him a couple of plow lines. And he let the lantern down to the bottom of the well, and sure enough, there that little lamb was, falling in that old well. He made him a loop on the other end of the rope, Leaned over, he could see the little lamb really well, let it down, got that rope right around that little lamb's neck, jerked him up real, real quick, 
and we had our lamb back. But all that little lamb was doing was just bleeding there in, in, the, in the well. That's all it could do. Couldn't get home by itself. Well, that lost sheep was found. And what did the person say when he brought that sheep home? Rejoice with me because I found the sheep. We ought to rejoice when a sinner repents. That is cause for rejoicing. Look at verse 7. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner who repents. Greatest victory in the world is when an individual repents of sin and turns to God. And then as you look at the lost coin, verse 9, rejoice with me. Verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's the joy of repentance. And then you come to the lost son. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this. And you preachers can take this and make a good sermon out of it now. But look at the demand that the boy made. Give me my inheritance. And what did that lead to? That led to a division of that inheritance. He made the demand and the father complied. He divided the inheritance. Then what came? The departure. He departed and went into a far country. One of the biggest mistakes he could have ever made. Then what followed? Destitution. He began to be in want, didn't he? Spent all of his stuff living the life of Riley, you know, living it up. But then finally, when he came to his senses, he made the decision of all decisions. He said, I'm going home. I'm going home. I am going to return to my father. Here I am in want, and the lowest servant that my father has has more than enough to survive. And when he came back, he didn't make any demands. He didn't say, here's what I want you to do, Daddy, except to request, very humbly, just let me be one of your servants. That's all I want to do. I just want to be a servant. So you have the coming home and the confession, and I want you to notice that confession. He said simply, I have sinned. He didn't say, I have sinned, but if my big brother hadn't been beating me up out behind the barn, I'd have never left. He didn't say, I have sinned, but I'm telling you what, Daddy, those people in that far country took advantage of me. You just can't imagine, Daddy, how, how terrible people are out there. He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't blame the father. He didn't say, if you hadn't been so mean to me and expected so much of me, I would never have left. No, he acknowledged, I've sinned. That's all he said. I've sinned. 
I've told people on many occasions, that's all you need to say. You don't have to go into great detail about what all you've done. If you understand that you have sinned like the prodigal son understood that he had sinned, that's all you need to say is, I have sinned. Oh, there's always people, they want to know the details. What's he done? You know, what, well, I can't imagine. What, what do you think he did? We don't need to even be thinking about that. Why? We need to be rejoicing that that individual has repented. What happened? There was rejoicing. There was merriment. The father, the servants, all except that self-righteous elder brother who didn't realize evidently what he had had all the time. He was envious. We should never be that way. It was meat, the father said. It was suitable that we make merry because this your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's been found. And that is reason for rejoicing. Repentance brings joy, not because one has sinned, but because he has repented. He's changed his mind. He now wants to serve the Lord. That might very well be your position right now. And if it is, you have a lot of people here who would rejoice with you if you would come home tonight. If you need to repent of sin in your life as an erring child of God, then you need to do that and pray that you might be forgiven. If you've never been baptized as a penitent confessing believer, you can do that tonight and leave this building forgiven of your sins and there will be rejoicing among the angels of heaven over what you have done. If you're subject to the sweet invitation of the one who said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why don't you come to him even now as we stand and sing?